welcome to the 218th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. This is the sixth installment in our ongoing series on Our Minnesota Future, a statewide initiative the Land Stewardship Project has helped launch. The guiding principle of Our Minnesota Future is that regular people and organizations representing the interests of these people need a stronger voice in our government. We need elected leaders who commit to govern alongside us and who work with us in deep partnership to create the changes we envision for people and the land. Besides LSP, 21 people's organizations are part of this coalition, including faith and environmental groups, organizations that work in communities of color and immigrant communities, as well as labor unions and progressive organizations. LSP members from various parts of the state, representing a variety of backgrounds, have been taking part in this initiative. For this episode of the podcast, here are a few statistics we need to be aware of as we discuss the future of farming and the communities that rely on farming. According to the latest U.S. Census of Agriculture, more than 30% of principal farm operators in this country are 65 or older, and the average age of those farmers is 58. The evidence is clear. If we are to support the kind of agriculture that is agronomically and economically diverse and that supports local businesses as well as schools, churches, and other institutions, we need more beginning farmers on the land. No one knows that better than Daryl Mosel. Soon after he graduated from college, Daryl, along with his wife Diane, began farming in southern Minnesota's Sibley County during the late 1970s and early 1980s. Within a few years, the agricultural economy had crashed, with farms being foreclosed on in record numbers. But the Mosels were able to tough it out. They also benefited from a landowner who sold them half of his farm on contract for deed and rented the other half to them for a few years. Later, when land prices dropped, the Mosels bought the other half of the farm. Over the years, they built up a 50-cow dairy herd and raised a diverse mix of crops, pasture, and hay. Such diversity is important to the Mosels, since they feel it protects the land from erosion and prevents runoff into area waterways. After all, the Minnesota River flows less than 20 miles from their farm. Daryl is now in his mid-60s, and Diane recently retired as a social worker. They are thinking about easing out of agriculture and making room for the next generation. Their two adult sons, Michael and Chris, are both interested in farming. In fact, Chris is in the process of trying to set up an organic dairy operation in central Minnesota. Daryl thinks a lot about the future of farming. He's long worked with LSP and other organizations to develop policies that support sustainable, family farm-based agriculture. And for a time, he served in the Minnesota legislature. He recently took a break from the fall harvest to chat with me about how consolidation in agriculture has impacted everything from Main Street to water quality in communities like his. We also talked about what policy changes could help create a brighter future for rural Minnesota and some positive trends he's seen in agriculture. Daryl also discussed why rural communities need to welcome and make room for a diverse spectrum of people, including new immigrants and people of color. Mosel started out describing how his community has changed since he and Diane launched their farming operation almost four decades ago. We do not have one single machinery dealer left in the whole county. And when we moved here in 1979, there was five in Gaylord alone and and many more throughout the county. And then also there was all the other businesses that um, service farmers like the, you know, the welding shops, the repair shops, the grain elevators. Today, Gaylord has literally one business left for agriculture, whereas when we moved here, it had about 40. And I, you know, and, and Gaylord's not unique. I don't want to make Gaylord feel bad, you know, that they've sort of failed because they didn't fail. It wasn't their fault, really. It's, uh, it's the farm bill. It was designed to continue to consolidate the farms 
And, you know, the agribusiness community, they have their economists that argue that that's just, that's just an efficiency model that you just have to embrace. And, and uh, I'm glad that I'm part of an organization that doesn't think that that's the case. We don't believe that's efficient. Uh, you know, right now, you might have a 5,000-cow dairy that has 50 employees. Well, sure, one person is getting fairly well off. Most of the employees are probably living, you know, below the cost of living. And the environment is certainly going to suffer, and the carbon footprint of those types of farms is just horrendous compared to, you know, farms being uh, scattered throughout and, and, and being more diverse. So there are lots of things that they apparently are forgetting in the efficiency equation. When you and Diane got started farming, did you get a sense that there was, I guess, within the community and maybe the wider community, this um, feeling that, yes, there is some opportunity here for young farmers to get started and that they're a positive asset for the community? I guess what I'm getting at is one of the issues it seems like beginning farmers run into now is there's not, both through policy and other ways, there just isn't that uh, feeling that they are the future, that they're, that they're moderate-sized, small-sized farmers farms are the future. If you're not going to be farming several thousand acres or have several thousand dairy cows, you're not really worth supporting kind of thing, if that makes sense. Surprisingly, when you look around the community that I live in here, I I know I've I've said this many times over the years to various people, if you take my farm and and, and draw a a radius around, you know, five miles out, I'd say 95% of the farmers are my age today. So they must have all started about when I did. which I don't think I realized at the time. And so to answer your question, does this community support at that time, did they support uh, farmers? Well, it certainly appears they did. So I think to answer your question, I think the community for the most part was pretty supportive of farmers. There was, I think, genuine support for uh, diversified farms and uh, family farms, so to speak. But on the other hand, I think there was there was a, a leaning toward, well, the writing is on the wall. We'd better move to the next phase. And Because when I, when Diane and I moved here, there was a chicken egg-laying processing plant, but it was very small, maybe 100,000 chickens. Mm-hmm. Today, I think it's 5 million. They're one of the largest in the world. They got into Guinness Book of World Records for having the largest egg conveyor. You know, and also the ethanol industry has been well-established in this area, which is, I hate to say it, kind of another way of expanding consolidated farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than having a farm bill that says, you know, we need to, to uh, protect the basic units and give them a fair price, the ethanol industry was kind of an excuse, I think, for fence row to fence row corn. It, it didn't have to be all that way, but it did. It's obviously had these negative economic impacts. You were talking about just the support businesses that have gone out and fewer and fewer farms, and that has an impact on institutions like schools, churches, everything. Have you seen some environmental impacts as well? Uh, as a result? Boy, without question. I, when, when we moved here, you know, 40 years ago, I won't say the lakes in the area were perfect by any stretch. Uh, they had their issues depending on the time of year. But today, as because when, when we moved here, I would say out of every 100 acres, at least one third of it was in a permanent cover, either alfalfa or pasture or small grain or something, and maybe even more than one third. But today, it's probably less than 1%. Uh, corn and soybeans, I would I'd say, occupy 99% of the farmland. Mm-hmm. And there's just been enormous amounts of tile have gone in over the past 20 years. So if there was some areas of meadow or, you know, unfarmable land, they are now farmed. Even though there was pretty good protection of wetlands, eh, for the most part, farmers were farming those areas enough so that they could they could get permission to tile. Everything is getting tiled out and, and pretty much has been already. All of the crop diversity is, for the most part, gone. Uh, and I'm talking Silby County, but I think you can pretty much expand this out to the entire south, uh, southern two-thirds of Minnesota. And the lake, especially our local 
Medical Lake is, for all practical purposes, dead. It, it, it cannot sustain any really normal fish life. Uh, no one can use it uh, for any recreation, especially swimming, but not even boating because it, you know, vegetation just overwhelms it quite early in the year. But I don't think you can, I don't think you can just pick on Gaylord Lake, uh, Lake Titlow. I think all the lakes are, as the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency released their study here a few years ago, most of them are impaired. And of course, the rivers, same situation, uh, Minnesota River. I mean, when I was in the legislature, Governor Carlson, to his credit, uh, had a very, I think, very good vision of what Minnesota River could look like someday if we worked on it. I don't know if we made much progress on that. So, yeah, the uh, the water quality is is very, very bad. And, and I think, you know, the other types of benefits of having diversity are also been diminished, you know, for those folks that like to hunt and, and enjoy natural beauty, it's been changed. Well, I think you make a really good point. We had talked about this earlier with, for example, a dairy farm. I mean, there's no doubt we have we have agriculture here, but it's corn and beans. When you had more dairy farms in the area and just livestock in general, there was this then need, those operations needed to have some hay ground and maybe some small grains in the mix and some pasture. They had to have that perennial system. And so when you lose there's losing agriculture and using losing certain kinds of enterprises, but then there's losing something like dairy or another livestock type operation that has an even bigger impact both on the community economically because it's less diverse enterprises involved. But it sounds like also the environment, the land, it's a big impact because you don't have that demand for perennial systems or, or diverse cropping systems anymore. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's It's a it's a pattern that uh, kind of started, you know, in in the '80s, and has just continued. It doesn't seem to doesn't seem to be anything stopping it really. The current farm bills are just perpetuating the same old the same old system. Talking about all, all the you know changes and the, the not positive changes. Is there anything, I guess, that gives you hope? Like, are there any trends or just developments that you feel like, uh, oh, there's some p- potential there if we could build more on those that, that maybe give you a little bit more of a positive view? Well, I, you know, certainly the organic food movement is is a very positive move because it almost 90% of the time involves crop diversity. And it also... Uh, focuses more on local community, especially growing local foods and, and participating in the community more as opposed to the conventional farming. Uh, I think 90 plus percent of the dollars that we produce leave the community. Fertilizer, seed, you know, machinery, uh, the finance, financial institutions, all of that money pretty much is gone. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, maybe 40, 50 years ago, I think most of that money stayed local. I, we actually had a few seed companies right in the area, small seed dealers or seed companies, they produce their own seed right here. And, you know, that, that whole system has changed where the seed is. So that's a very positive thing. I think that, uh, I don't know that it necessarily needs to be organic, but sustainable egg in a sense. And fortunately, the consumers are demanding that. And the market is moving that direction, you know, in a very fast way. You know, the other thing I think conventional farmers have been more willing than I ever would have thought to research with uh, different cover crops and different farming practices that more precisely place nutrients. And um, I have to give them some credit there. They are interested in those sorts of things. So that's kind of hopeful. And then, you know, in the non-farm part of our community, there is a lot of effort there. I think uh, extension is sort of extension has sort of lost the farm community, the farming farmers in the farm community, but they have sort of focused more on business uh, development in our small town. So we do have some hopeful things happening there. This this might be a result of uh, of, of just pure pure economics, but I do see the younger families moving 
back toward the rural area again, uh, as opposed to always migrating toward the metropolitan area. That's been really one of the most devastating things, I think, as far as our population is concerned. We've lost so many young family, young people, because they don't see opportunity in Slayton or Wadena or Gaylord. So they've moved to the metropolitan area where they see more security as far as their... So those are some positive things that I think are good. And, and, and beyond, beyond that, I think generally all of us, uh, 90% of us, are interested in environmental quality in one way or another. So there's some hope there. So you have a son, Chris, who I visited his farm uh, recently and, and saw what he's doing, but he's trying to build, uh, kind of build the infrastructure to maybe eventually be going to organic dairying. And so that must be, I'm sure you have a little, you're a little nervous about whether that's going to work out, but to see somebody who grew up on the farm here, and I know he went away and studied uh, economics, yeah, I studied economics, and then, but then decided he wanted to come back and farm. That must be, even though the, the future's still up in the air, how that's going to work out, the fact that he's starting to build up a herd and sees enough opportunity and also doesn't hate farming and living in a rural area. I mean, he, he, he grew up here and everything and has seen the big city and came back. That must be kind of positive to see that a little bit. Uh, it very much is. And, 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 you know, and to that point, besides my two sons, who I think it's sort of in their blood now, they just love, you know, being part of the farming farming operation in the sense they like mechanics and they like the outdoors and the, and the independence and, and the business part of it. I do know there are a number of young people in the area that I think would like to farm. Um, I'm kind of working right now with uh, with a neighbor boy or neighbor a person. Uh, he's probably in his early 30s, just uh, working with him a little bit in case that, you know, we Mike and my sons can't farm. Just We just can't make it work. And um, I think he's probably one of quite a few that would be interested. We had a um, my one of my friend, one of Chris's friends in high school, always came and worked on our farm during the summer. And you would have never thought, no, in your wildest dreams, that he would want to farm or could ever farm. I should put it that way. I think he always wanted to, but but he got lucky enough to uh, marry someone who also wanted to farm, and so they are farming today. Mm-hmm. They're struggling, of course, but they're making it, I think. And so you know, you're absolutely right. I think there are there are some hopeful signs there as far as the next transition. Have you thought about either through just I know you do a lot of reading and you talk to a lot of people and and have been involved with our Minnesota Future and have talked to both a lot of farmers and non-farmers. Have you thought about what could be some positive policy reforms or new policies, that, public policies that could, I guess, take advantage of some of those positive elements that you talked about and kind of promote those even more, but also maybe deal with some of the negative issues that are really having such a negative impact on the on rural communities and, and farmers, that type of thing. Have you talked about that? And I guess we can talk about both on the state level, but also on the federal level, because I know you've been involved with that as well. I don't know if there's much stomach for it right now, but I, I really think that most economists would argue that we, we need we need to have a, a system of in the farm bills that, that helps us operate our businesses more like everybody else operates their business. Um, we need to be more we need to be more willing to adjust our supply to meet our demand. And right now uh, the farm bill is is only one sided. It only focuses on creating more creating more supply and not limiting the supply production. But I think uh, beyond that. I think to make that idea more acceptable, we would have to have 
some sort of a tie it together with conservation. In, in, because I think I think just by itself, people are not going to be interested in leaving some land lay idle during times of surplus. Mm-hmm. But I think if we could tie it together with some sort of a conservation program where we bring the non-farm part of our country into it, I think there would be a willingness to do that. Because right now, the farm bills are actually costing probably as much or way more than, than they would if we had a supply management system tied together with conservation efforts. Those are some some types of federal policies that I think we could get enough support across the aisle and across the different farm groups, uh, especially in light of the fact that now we are we are now headed into a new era where the farm groups have been solidly behind trade agreements and trade as the as the one way to get rid of surpluses. And now all of a sudden we're dealing with a situation where you know we we may be not able to trade with certain countries due to the you know current administration policy. So I'm thinking maybe farm groups will now be more open to ideas that uh, tie conservation together with supply management. What about on a state level? Is there any existing programs that could be expanded or new new initiatives that you think could uh, help uh, on that state state level and kind of regional level? Well, the area that I that I'm most interested in or I shouldn't say most interested that I really really have a good interest in is is some sort of a state bank. It's really hard for existing lending institutions and even the FSA to work with beginning farmers. It's just too risky for them. They 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 have to put there, there's not enough equity ever when you start so that they can fall back on that and take the farm back, so yeah. to speak. And I think if there was some way to establish a state bank, you know, where we could use the power of the state of Minnesota to maybe assume more of the risk. Um, when I started farming, we did have what we called the Minnesota Farm Security Act that was abandoned during the 1980s uh, just because the farm situation got so serious uh, in, in terms of a downturn. And I think it was also a lot of politics involved in that that maybe mixed it all up and, and made it not workable. But that kind of an idea tied together with a, with a sort of a state bank idea would be one way, I think, to, to make it easier for farm, young people to get into farming. You know, there are areas right now in, in the tax policy policy that help a little bit in terms of giving a tax break to people that, you know, that are willing to uh, let a beginning farmer begin. They're pretty, pretty minimal at best, and they don't really do a whole lot, not, especially not in times like this when we have such a serious downturn in the economy. I do think the educational opportunities, I think, are there sufficiently for farm, for people to begin farming. Not the non you know non academic areas the uh, as far as the agribusiness they I think are pretty well positioned to train people mm-hmm. or help educate people on how to farm I know our organization LSP is you know is very excited about the beginning farmer and rancher ideas a big stumbling block of course is getting the finances together mm-hmm. there's no way to really compete if you don't have an advantage over your you know over the existing farmers you simply cannot compete with the you know the land land uh, purchases and that kind of thing and even machinery it seems like that for those to get put in place and to get support behind them we really need we can't rely on uh, just farm and even rural constituents that we really do need people from the cities and the suburbs to get behind seeing why why is this a public good to support farmers you know and a certain type of farming and and what's in it for me kind of thing we are definitely seeing it with this current federal farm bill discussion in that the majority of public is like well i don't care if it passes or not whereas rural communities are kind of like this is this could really change the way our landscape looks in the next five years or whatever is that i guess part of the draw of i know you've been involved with the our minnesota future initiative and that has been bringing in it's it's a coalition that's involving groups 
from all over that uh, are representing people from a real diversity of backgrounds and urban, suburban, and even when it's in rural communities in outstate Minnesota, not necessarily all those people are going to be farming. You know, they're living maybe in a regional community. Uh, center like a Wilmer or, or Worthington, something like that. Is that really, is that what we kind of need is something like that that's going to bring farmer people, farmers like you together with people where you can both kind of see, oh, this is where, why we need certain policies that kind of supports all of us, you know, kind of thing. Is that is that part of your interest in that? Oh, very much so. Gosh, I'll never forget when I was in the legislature, you know, 30 years ago or whatever it's been now, 25 years ago, I guess, somewhere in that range. Um, I was always impressed with most of the legislature in the central core cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul were oftentimes supporting farm issues with no reluctance. Well, I shouldn't say no reluctance, but very willing, uh, especially if it was reasonable. And I think a lot of that has disappeared over the years. I think our our elected officials are we're so divided as a, as a state right now. And so to bring together the organizations that I've seen involved with our Minnesota future, wow, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bright spot in my opinion to get back, try to get back to where we were 25, 30 years ago, where we were, everybody wanted to benefit from good transportation policy. Uh, Everybody wanted to benefit from safe food. It just seemed like there was just much more of a willingness. Yes, you were protecting your area. Of course, you have to do that. Can't forget that when you're elected, but looking out more broader and, and wider across the system to, you know, to bring everybody's way of life up, their quality of life up was the way I think it used to be. And I would think we'd want it that way again. So I, I, I really, really am excited about our Minnesota future, the development of that. And hopefully it can just keep on growing and, and become more of a force. You know, the one area that it's certainly a big national issue is immigration, at least in my community here. And I think I can say that about a lot of communities, especially in the southern two-thirds of the state, is uh, the families that are that have moved here the past 20 years to fill a lot of the jobs that we don't have people to fill because they've left. And, and now that I'm in my 60s and everybody else is, you know, we're not going to be taking those jobs. Mm-hmm. Diane and I were visiting her brother in a nursing home yesterday by St. Cloud, and it was shocking to me to see that 20 years ago you would not have seen anybody but someone that's white working in the nursing home. But now I noticed a, a, a quite diverse group of people working there. I think uh, we have a serious problem right now in our state that I'm just thinking there's not a willingness to accept folks of a different ethnic background or different racial background in the rural part of our state. And that really worries me because it would be no different 100 years ago if you were Irish or Scandinavian or German or whatever, Polish. It shouldn't make any difference because uh, today, if you're black or Muslim or Somali or whatever you are, what's what's the difference, you know? So that's one issue that I think the next governor is going to have to work on, I think, in the rural part of our state. In all fairness, here in Gaylord, the only diversity we really have is, is a Hispanic population. I know it's different throughout the rest of Minnesota, but it took a long time for people to accept that in this in this community. And it's still quite segregated. You know, there's no Hispanic people serving on the school board. There's nobody on the city council. There's very few businesses that are Hispanic, that Hispanic people are running. If they are, we have a grocery store, but it serves 99% Hispanic families. Mm -hmm. So we're not mixing that respect. They're doing a lot of our work already, but we're not, we're not mixing up culturally or socially. It's just not happening. So that's one area that I think there's going to be a a big area to work on. That's one of the things our Minnesota Future is really trying to to work on is bring together uh, groups like us who are mostly white Mm-hmm. <laughs> rural yeah. folks and g- r- groups that represent new immigrants, 
communities of color, that kind of thing. Um, it's just a way for them to come together in the same room and say, hey, we have similar challenges and uh, also to see what other challenges the others have that uh, uh, maybe aren't, they didn't think about. Well, the, the biggest issue they have, you know, first of all, overcoming, I won't say out and out prejudice. I don't know that you can say that. Certainly there are very prejudiced people living in our community, or we know that, but I think the vast majority of people are not. They're not overly prejudiced. They're just not familiar with their with their culture, with their way of life, or you know, with with different ethnic and, and racial groups. Aside from that, I think the biggest problem that we're facing is there's really no place. The housing situation is just extremely. It's the most serious I've ever seen it. There's there's virtually no place for anybody to live. You know, they can't afford to. Most of the immigrate immigrants, people that are immigrating here for these jobs, they're they're low wage jobs for the most part, at least relatively speaking. They're getting better. You know, the benefits are pretty good, but the the working conditions are fair, but the wages mediocre at best. So they can't afford to build a house, which is going to cost what two twenty five. So that's a big area is housing and um, you know educational opportunities are I guess there as long as we can deal with the segregation problems, which I hope we can in time. The next governor I think is really going to have to focus on first being a role model, but also you know getting down to getting down to working on the issue of of housing and all the other infrastructure things that immigrating families need. To listen to the Ear to the Ground podcast interview with Daryl's son, Chris, who's working to launch a dairy enterprise of his own, see episode 198. For more on the Our Minnesota Future initiative, see landstewardshipproject.org and follow the links under the Organizing for Change tab. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <music> you.